Have you ever experienced tough love? I seem to experience it a lot. Uh, I think I'm just that thick-headed, you know? Uh, One time was uh, not long after um, Jen and I were married, um, you know, we, we, had, we had sealed the whole thing down with the vows, you know, and I think she felt like she could take the risk and tell me that a lot of my wardrobe needed to go. Uh, tough love. Another time I was a freshman in college and I worked a camp in the summertime. Uh, most, of, uh, most of the camp took place in the deep southeast. Some of us, you might say you're a southerner if you live in Kentucky. Well, spend a summer in Alabama and tell me what you think. Uh, it is not the deep south around here, but we were, I was outside. I coached sports all day. I was with children uh, from third to sixth grade from about 8 a.m. until about 10.30 p.m. every day. A lot of it was outside. I was a few weeks in, and I wanted to quit. I mean, it was long days. It was really hot. So I went to my director, and I was kind of mopey, and he quoted to me uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, and he says, don't be weary in doing good. And I was like, golly. Another time was my mom. My mom was a real stickler about the bathroom. I mean, they had their own bathroom, you know, off the master. But, you know, most of the time, the way it worked in our house is that all four people in our house used the same bathroom most of the time. And so she was hardcore about keeping your towels hung up, keeping the counter cleaned off. And for the two, you know, it was my mom, my dad, and I, it was me and my brother. And me and my brother, we had to make sure that toilet was clean, which was a real chore uh, for small boys, you know. But she was a stickler about a lot of tough love for us in our house around the bathroom. Now, how did you receive tough love in the past? Maybe it was a coach. Maybe it's a supervisor in a work environment. I don't know, but we all need to be jolted back into reality by those who love us from time to time, don't we? I think this happens uh, acutely for, uh, during interventions for addicts, uh, loved ones. They want to promote the welfare of the addict. They want to enforce certain constraints on them. They want to require them to take responsibility for their actions. Why? Because they love them. See, you can use the term tough love and it can be a disguise for cruelty, but when it's done well, it can be highly effective. And that's what, what John is doing in our text today. We're going to start in verse 7. We'll uh, finish with verse 14 of chapter 2. Uh, Beloved, I'm writing to you a new commandment. Not, I, sorry, let me start again. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is the new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children, because you know the father. I write to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. The word of the Lord. You've been with us the last few weeks. Uh, You know, I've been harping on the fact that John here, the Apostle John, 
uh, John, who was a disciple, John, who wrote the gospel of John, that he is an old man now. He's in his 80s or his 90s. He's got lots of experience, and he wants the church or the churches that he pastors to have assurance. He wants them to know that they're Christians, so he tells them that they actually can know by giving them these tests. The first test was last week. It was a test about obedience to God. You saw it in chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. And this obedience to God, it shows us that our primary posture towards God is one of submission. He focused on a different set of relationships this week. It's our relationships with one another. And he says that we're to have love for one another. And he says that there's three things that he wants us to know about the nature of love in verses 7 through 11. So the first thing he wants us to know about the nature of love is that it's both old and new. It's old. Think about it. It's old because it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. What Camille read earlier from the book of Leviticus was a call to love others. Everything in there from gleaning the fields to making judgments was all about love in Leviticus chapter 19. So love isn't anything new. It's also nothing new because it goes back to Jesus. I mean, remember what Jesus taught. He taught that the Old Testament could be summarized with loving God and loving neighbor, Matthew chapter 22. So it's old, but it's also new. And it's new for John's readers because it's got a new example and it's got a new experience. See, John's readers have the example of all of Jesus's life to look at as a model for love. And think about it. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that Jesus loved everybody. I had a friend that uh, he said every time he left the house in high school, his older brother said, hey, just take my advice. Love them all, just like Jesus. Which I thought was pretty funny considering my friend's life in high school. But if you look at Jesus' life, you see that he loved his friends. He had Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He loved lost souls like the rich young ruler or Zacchaeus. He loved the disciples. He loved his mother. He loved the city of Jerusalem when he wept over it, even though it was hostile towards him. He loved the two thieves that were either side of him on the cross. He loved those who carried out his crucifixion. And then Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us that Jesus loved us when we're weak, when we were his enemies, when we had nothing to offer him but hassle. He loved us. And so this is a new example that John's readers have that believers have never had up to this point. It's also new in experience. Paul writes 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Interesting. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. See, what Paul's calling attention to here is much more than an example to imitate in the person of Jesus. What Paul's saying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, is that he's evoking a living power. He's trying to tell us that, yes, Jesus is the revelation of love, but he's also the source of it. A quote by John Cotton, an early American minister, he said this. He said, never look to fulfill this commandment to imitate Christ until you become a new man. For it is a new commandment and a new commandment requires new obedience and new obedience requires a new spirit. So love is a 
new experience. It's got this inner source of power. I know it seems odd that something can be both old and new at the same time. But think about it. Think about when a song is redone. Or think about when a, a, a type of meal that you've eaten so many times is given a new twist. That song, that meal, it's old and new. Same is true for love. And the second thing that John tells us is in verse 9. He says that he says that you can't love and hate at the same time. Look at verse 9. It says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. So he's calling attention to this light and dark dynamic. They can't go to the, together. No, neither can love and hate. Love and hate, darkness and light, they form a duality. It's an either-or dynamic. They're antithetical to one another. You can't mix them. John is trying to tell us that there's no neutral ground here. But sometimes when we define hate, we define it in such a way that it prevents us from saying that it exists in our lives. When you think about it, when you think of hatred, it's usually equivalent to violence or extreme animosity. And when you say that hatred is like that, then you take yourself off the hook, don't you? I mean, most of us, we're not very violent. We don't have extreme animosity, at least not very often. Maybe not bad enough to say that we are haters ourselves. But John is trying to tell us is that hate is simply just a failure to love. So that means that being indifferent is a failure to love. I mean, think about the Good Samaritan. The priest and the Levite, when they passed by, what did they do to him? Did they spit on him? No. Did they curse at him? No. Did they beat him some more? No. They didn't do any nasty things to him. They just ignored him. So that's hatred according to the scriptures. And if hatred is indifference, who are we most likely to be indifferent toward? Well, the parable of the Good Samaritan would tell us is that we're most likely to do it to those who are different than us. Now, you might not say that you hate those who are poor. If you're a person who can pay the bills, you might not say that you don't hate minorities if you are of the majority. But when we aren't exposed to the painful realities of what it's like to be on the fringes of society, we easily become indifferent. And that for John is hatred. So what do we do? Who gets our love, right? We usually draw this little circle around us of who we're willing to engage with. It usually includes people that we share DNA with. It usually includes people who are about our age. It usually includes people we've known a long time. If you're Christians, it usually just includes Christians. And if you were to look at this week, if you were to look at everyone you've texted with, everyone you've talked to, everyone you saw with your own eyes and communicated with, everybody that you've prayed for, who were they? Were they mostly Christians? Were they mostly people about your age? Were they mostly people you've known for a while? Were they mostly people who made about the same amount of money as you? If so, you are likely indifferent to those who are different from you. 
Now, I know that raises the bar of love really high, but Jesus just keeps going. I mean, in Luke chapter 6, he says we're to love our enemies. This, is, this passage starts in verse 32 of Luke chapter 6. Let me just read it to you. And Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So you see here, Jesus calls to love our enemies. Who is your enemy? Who's most likely to be your enemies in our context? Who are they? I, I, I think it, this is universal across time, across places. I think usually our enemies are those who have hurt us. And I think what's unique to our time is that they're also those who are, who, who are different from us and their ideological political views. We demonize those people. If somebody's hurt us or somebody's different from us ideologically, they're our enemy. We can't demonize those according to Jesus. We are to love them. So love is old and new. You see, love and hatred can't go together. And the last thing that you see is that when a community loves one another, it keeps them upright. Look at verse 10 and 11. Verse 10, John says that those who love don't cause others to stumble. And then verse 11 says that hating a person is like aimlessly walking around in the dark, which means you probably fall down easier. So why should you love other people? So you keep them from falling down. Another reason why you should love other people is so that you yourself don't fall down. You walk in the light that way. And so when you put these two truths together and you practice them, you have a community of people who aren't falling over one another. Now, it doesn't mean things are clean. It doesn't mean that there's no conflict. But what it does mean is that people are interacting in ways that aren't harmful to one another. It means that people are aiding one another's progress in the faith. So you put all that together, right? And you can just hear after verse 11, John's readers are like, all right, old man. <laughs> Let, let, let up, will you? We, we can't take anymore. See, John's love is really tough. It's especially tough when you have last week's verses in mind too, the ones about obedience. And now he's calling them to love one another. So it's really clear the challenge has been issued. It's been issued to the original hearers, and now it's been issued to us, to you and to me. Do you love people. Do you love after the example of Jesus? Do you love across lines of difference and get uncomfortable? Do you love those who have hurt you? Are you willing to forgive them? Are you stumbling around in hatred and causing others to stumble around because of your hatred? Do you love people enough to pray for them? Do you love them enough to bear their burdens for them? The task is tall, isn't it? But so tall that John gives them encouragement. He finally lets up a little bit. In verses 12 to 14, do you see what he did here? 
And John addresses his readers twice as children, twice as fathers, and twice as young men. Is he addressing three groups among his readers who are at different levels of maturity? Is he addressing them by their biological age or by their spiritual age? I don't know. I read five commentaries and listened to two sermons to try to figure that out. And I have no idea. But what I do know is that each encouragement is a resource for every Christian, regardless of your gender, regardless of your age. We need these truths in order to love, in order to obey. You've got to get them in you, not just on you. Now, you might just take verses 7 to 11, and you're really gung-ho. You're like, all right, I'm going to love. Well, that would be kind of like what I did for half of my day yesterday. Half my day yesterday, I spent washing the outside of my car. It's white, so it looks terrible easily. The inside of my car is probably worse. It's black. It looks really bad really fast. I mean, there's stuff everywhere in there. I have three kids. I mean, I, I found 17 pieces of candy in the backseat of my car. I didn't even know they were there. I hadn't sat in the backseat of that car ever. And I cleaned it all out. That's the outside, right? That's what I can see. And I thought, you know what? I think I'm going to get my oil changed. So I go, get the oil changed. And they say, well, um, your car needs a new battery. I was like, of course, I knew this was going to happen. Said, uh, your car needs a new air filter. I was like, I knew that was going to happen. Uh, your, your car's tires are a little bald, uh, the front two. I was like, geez, just piling it up on me. I was feeling real good about having a clean car. It looks so good on the outside. And I think that's what so many of us do, isn't it? We say, all right, I'm going to go out and love. But we don't have the inner resources we need to keep going. If I don't pay attention to the inside of my car, the outside's not going to matter. And so John gives us these resources he gives us these truths. You've got to get them in you, not just on them. You can't just smear them on the outside. You've got to ingest them. So here's the first one. The first one is to know that your sins are forgiven. Look at verse 12. See, it's listed first because forgiveness is most fundamental. It's the most fundamental experience of being a Christian. It's the condition of fellowship with God. So it's of vital importance. It has a lot of usefulness. It, it frees you from your guilt and shame. It communicates to you that you are loved at great price. But what I want to pay attention to is that last phrase, that you are forgiven for his name's sake. Why do you think you're forgiven? If I were to ask you that, why, why do you think you're forgiven? Do you think you're forgiven because you've repented? Well, if you do, how do you know that your repentance was genuine? How do you know that you were sorrowful enough for your sin? So if you think that you are forgiven because you've repented, you will eventually go insane. It'd be like constantly going to your spouse and asking them if they loved you. I mean, think about it. If you did that, you could never actually love your spouse because you would be totally unaware of their actual needs because you're constantly assessing what they think about you. So sure, your repentance is essential. Every person who's ever been forgiven has repented. But your repentance only accesses the forgiveness. It doesn't merit it. I mean, think about a light switch. 
The light doesn't come on because you flipped a switch. The light came on because the switch was connected to a current of electric. So your forgiveness is on account of his name. The wellspring for your forgiveness comes from Jesus. And when that gets down really, really deep in you, you're free to love other people. Look at the second encouragement, the second resource. It comes twice, verse 13 and verse 14. It talks about having strength. It talks about overcoming the evil one. And look at verse 13. It says, uh, or verse 14, it says uh, that because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, you have overcome the evil one. What he's trying to tell us is that there's a power, there's a, there's a force, there's a spiritual strength that all believers have access to because of the word of God that abides in you. See, victory is not just something that's gonna come when you get to heaven. Victory is something that you can experience now. Change can happen now. Now, maybe you've fallen into the trap of thinking that change can't happen. It can't happen for you. It can't happen for the world. You're very aware of your indwelling sin. You're very aware that Satan is crouching, crouching around looking for someone to devour. You're very aware that the world is pulling us into its orbit and is opposed to the things of God. But verse 14 tells us that we can overcome the evil one, that we have power. Things can change. How many of you are Enneagram people? We have any Enneagram people? Or you're afraid to admit it? Let's just think about Enneagram. Now, some of you might be really opposed to this. You might think it's of the devil. That's fine. But most of you don't. So I'm going with most of you who don't. All right? Let me just run through here. This is a little 101 on the Enneagram for you, right? There's nine types. So let me get through each one. The first one, the perfectionist. Don't raise your hand if you're in here, you know. Here are the perfectionists. The perfectionists that are very responsible. They're improvement-oriented. But they can be inflexible and overly critical. Twos. The giver. They excel at making connections and empathizing with others. But they can slip in being accepted, needing to be accepted and liked by others. Performer. Americans love performers. They take initiative. They work hard. But they tend to be impatient and vain. Fours, the romantic. <laughs> Compassionate and possess great emotional depth. But they're moody withdrawn, uncooperative. It's not true for you, though, you know. Five, the observer. They focus on intellectual understanding, so they're often scholars, technical experts, but they tend to be isolated, stingy. Six, the loyalists. They're very loyal, courageous, and perceptive, but they can be overly suspicious and pessimistic. Seven, the enthusiasts, they're fun-loving and spontaneous, but they're easily distracted and self-absorbed. I love sevens. <laughs> I wish I was one. Eight, the challenger, they're energetic and they'll fight for what they think is right, but they can be overly aggressive and angry and dominating. 
the peacemaker. They're easygoing and harmonious, but they can be ambivalent and avoid conflict. See, sometimes we love these kind of things, don't we? Especially people in their 20s love these things right here. And why is that? Well, I think a lot of times it's because we're trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives, especially when it comes to career. We're trying to figure out how, how do people work in relationships with one another? Now, that's good. But I think sometimes personality assessments can also be a means by which we excuse our unhealthy patterns. So for instance, if you're a three, you know, the performers, you can, you take the initiative, you work hard, but you tend to be impatient and vain. And you think, oh, I'm a three. I'm just impatient and vain. That's the only way that I'm going to be able to get anything done. Well, that's not what John would say. John would say you don't have to be that way. He would say that Christians don't have to be static, that we can improve because there's a power at work in us to make us a loving, obedient person. There's a third resource. We see it with the fathers. The exact same thing is said in verse 13 and then again in verse 14, that we can know him who is from the beginning. And this is the ultimate piece of encouragement, isn't it? That we can know God, that he's not distant, that he's bigger than us, that he is from the beginning, but he's our heavenly father. I love this quote by J.I. Packer. He writes this. He said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and their whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that the New Testament says is new is better than the old. Everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God as father. So brother and sister, go in love. It's of old and it's new. It cannot mix with hatred. It keeps you from stumbling and keeps others from stumbling about. And so to the degree that you draw on the spiritual resources of being forgiven, of having the abiding word that dwells in you to give you strength, of having the knowledge that God is your father, will be the degree that you can love in this way. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, father, we do need your help to love. Lord, we, we need to change in order to love others. Know that we have to believe that we are indeed forgiven. And Lord, we have to know that we have you as our Father. Oh, Lord, help us to be a church that loves, not just that's nice, not just that's personable, but that loves, that engages and involves ourselves with other people at great cost to ourselves. Lord, help us do this. In Christ's name, amen.